This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome. My name is Patrice Petro. I'm the director of the Carsey Wolf Center. It's my great pleasure to welcome you to the second of our center's three research roundtables that we've organized for this February. These roundtables are part of a larger series dedicated to exploring media, technology, and politics under pressure. Today's session explores the theme of television in the age of pandemic. It is in part a follow-up to our last year's conference, which I co-organized with Victoria Johnson. Vicki has been central to organizing this roundtable as well, and I want to thank her for all of, all of her ideas and insights and unwavering support. Our conference last year focused on television, um, especially but not only in relation to sports, news, and celebrity culture. We return to these themes today, now in the aftermath of a health pandemic, as well as global political uprisings against white supremacy, police brutality, and structural racism. Professors Victoria Johnson, Reese Peck, Samantha Shepard, and Kristen Warner were part of last year's event and have agreed to join us today to reflect on what has changed or what hasn't changed about their thinking about race, politics, and television in the aftermath, aftermath of a tumultuous 2020. I would like to invite the panelists to the screen and ask them to briefly introduce themselves and how the roundtable theme intersects with their own research. Well, welcome everyone. So Vicki, why don't you start? Thank you, Patrice. Thanks so much to everyone who's joining us today. Um, my name is Victoria Johnson, or go by Vicki. Uh, I'm a professor in film and media studies and in African American studies at the University of California, Irvine. Uh, my research focuses on US television history and the contemporary media industries, particularly through the lenses of critical cultural geography, critical race theory, and most recently, the critical nexus of media and sports in US culture. Um, I'm currently especially interested in how the pandemic has urged a confrontation with sports central role, not just in media culture, but also as built environment upon which civic, economic and emotional health uh, has had increasingly been uh, premised prior to COVID. Uh, and now we see uh, the invocation of built in sports built environment for uh, Again, civic uses in terms of vaccination sites and so forth. Um, and I have to plug uh, that my book, Sports TV, is being released on March 25th by Routledge. Congratulations. Uh, Samantha, do you want to go next? Absolutely. Thank you, Patrice, and thank you, um, Vicki, for the generous invitation. I am Samantha Shepard. I am the Mary Armstrong Modusky 1980 Assistant Professor of Cinema and Media Studies um, in the Department of Performing and Media Arts at Cornell. And uh, my work is principally about thinking about race, um, gender, and sexuality in cinema and media, um, which has sort of produced a work that does look at sports called Sporting Blackness um, and extends beyond that to try to think as capaciously about um, moments of resistance, embodiment, um, and uh, like what I consider to be sort of history through the body um, in various venues and, um, and representational sites. 
And I am really, really glad to be here in large part because I think this dovetails very nicely with what we started talking about last year um, in the conversation about Marshawn Lynch and um, visual signifiers with athletes um, and the pandemic. And of course, what has happened with um, athletes on TV um, has been really, really interesting. And so I look forward to talking about that and Kristen Warner's work. That's great. So Kristen Warner, over to you. <laughs> Good evening, everybody. I'm Kristen Warner. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Journalism and Creative Media at the University of Alabama. And I just want to first thank Patrice and Vicki for being so kind and bringing, bringing me back uh, this year to talk with y'all and to um, see um, just how funny we get in the course of this, this, this conversation. Um, my work largely uh, concerns issues um, of race representation as they relate to um, issues of employment and labor in the media industries. And so a lot of the work that I do tries to explain the decision-making processes um, from the C-suites on down in terms of how people are represented on screen and the decisions that go into deciding what you know, factors are valued and not valued in terms of um, bodily representation as opposed to what might be more meaningful types of representation. And so I look forward to our conversation today as I, you know, as we see where we get to. Thank you. <clears throat> Reese. Yeah, I wanna echo Kristen's sentiments and thank, thank you, Patrice. Thank you, Vicki, uh, for letting me be a part of this awesome panel. panel and hello, everyone out there. Um, my name is Reese Peck. I am an associate professor at the College of Staten Island, CUNY. Uh, my research uh, examines partisan journalism, tabloid media, populist political ret rhetoric, and the cultural politics of race and class. And I, I think my research uh, connects with the theme of this panel by looking at primarily um, the way the conservative media has covered uh, the COVID crisis. Uh, and, and also looking forward at the way the left media sector is responding, particularly online. Yeah, great. Well, thanks to all of you for joining us. Um, <clears throat> so let's start with question number one. So in preparation for this roundtable, <clears throat> I ask that each of you share an article of your own or an archival document that you find particularly germane or something written by someone else that you think is important or has become important to you during these times. Could you each um, say what article or document you selected and why? And why don't we go in reverse order? So Reese, you're first. Shameless self-promotion. <laughs> my own article on that guy, which made me after, you know, people are sharing each other's colleagues work. I felt really uh, bad about myself, but I was surprised that I actually wrote something about COVID and I, I was very, um, tentative about doing that. You know, us academics, we don't like to, um, we like to diagnose, we don't like to prognosticate. And, um, but I just felt like I, it was just too pressing and, and I had to engage how Fox was covering uh, the crisis. So I, I submitted a piece that I, that's coming out in the Rutledge Companion on populism and uh, disinformation. And the title is Listen to Your Gut, How Fox News' Populist Style Changed the American Public Sphere and Journalistic Truth in the Process. Um, and so I just thought it was, you know, appropriate since we're talking about the pandemic and we're talking about television. And in my case, it's television news. 
Uh, and, you know, I think the conclusion is really, uh, I have, I've, I've long had, well, first off there right now, what we're witnessing is an explosion in academic literature on disinformation and misinformation. This is like the, the new hot field and, and it's been around for a while and it has its roots in propaganda analysis and, um, and even going back to the kind of mass communication theories, like the hypodermic needle theory and, and whatnot. So I have my issues with it. And so I, I wanted to kind of make an intervention on this discussion. And, and really, I, I'm, I'm looking at the limitations of focusing so much on things like epistemology and, and bias uh, and, and technological infrastructures. And I want to move the conversation more toward issues of identity, of moral narratives, of aesthetic style that I think can, can open up uh, the discussion on, you know, how the left devises a, a response, how they deal with um, the right-wing uh, media ecosystem and in this issue of uh, disinformation, which I'm not denying is a is, re is a real issue, but the question is, is how, how do we deal with it? How do we think about it? Yeah, great. I will pick up on that later on. So Kristen, do you wanna say what you selected and why it was important to you? Sure. So um, I, uh, I selected a piece that I co-wrote with Claire Croft, a colleague of mine at University of Michigan, uh, a piece that we co-wrote together for the LA Review of Books uh, in two part, uh, for two reasons. One, because it directly uh, addresses the, the place of COVID and quarantine in both of our lives as academic women. And, and two, because it's one of the last things that I've written, um, it's just been a hell of a year. And so when I think about like the last thing that I had like a whole cogent thought about, it was trying to work out how, um, how you deal in this, how you deal with quarantine. How do you deal like what kinds of things do you do um, to to get your get yourself out of your mind, get to sort of take a break? And so one of the things that Claire and I had both uh, discovered was uh, Ryan Huffington's um, sweat fest on Instagram, and you know, independently of each other, both decide, we both started, you know, doing the exercises and the workouts and, you know, and there was something about it that when we talked, when we came together to talk about it, we both found ourselves just enamored with, with the process because, you know, it's silly and funny and, but also very, um, emotive and very moving as you go through all of these movements. And my interest in, in, in Ryan came from, you know, watching OA obsessively on Netflix, I'm right, may it rest in peace, and the entirety of sort of the movements. And there was something about that that connected here. There's something that I saw um, in doing these rote daily exercises, you know, running to the refrigerator and sort of miming what it's like when you eat a hot pepper. There is something, or doing the Nancy Pelosi clap and, you know, like walking, like giving yourself the space to do that, or, you know, pulling your, putting your robe on and using that as your dance outfit. There was something about that that felt like getting outside of your body and giving yourself the ability to take a minute to um, feel like you're, you're elsewhere and to, to sort of connect and this bodily necessity that we needed and that we still need um, in this particular moment. So it felt different from what I ordinarily do uh, in my ordinary work, but felt very necessary at the time. Samantha. Perfect. Well, I knew that Kristen was gonna be here. So I figured if I got 
her information wrong that she could just correct me on the official record um, for everyone. But I selected in the time of plastic representation, a piece that um, Kristen Warner um, here wrote in at the end of 2017, but had honestly been years in the making one Twitter tweet at a time, um, one Facebook response at a time. Um, and even though it's from 2017, um, a, I think it's a really great chance for us all to think about what does it mean to write a piece that um, that marks a moment and also will be just be a, a watershed piece for how we think about representation. But a large part of why I love this essay that's in Film Quarterly is because Kristen really challenges us in this complex way to think, are we comfortable with the concept representation matters? And how does that then transfer to how we can think about television is look, it's the age of the pandemic. And then as Patrice has brought up, this is also the moment of global uprisings and responses to white supremacy, police brutality, um, right? So it's people saying, well, you know what? I just noticed Jenny Slate is doing the voice of Missy on Big Mouth. Maybe we need to fill in her character, her animated character with a black body, right? To provide a quote unquote cultural specificity for that character. Or, you know, that same thing happens on Central Perk. It seems to be happening a lot in animation, but it also was making me think, and I think this will dovetail nicely with, um, with, with Vicky's piece, but also the ways in which, you know, cultural industries are trying to signal that visually that representation matters. It's the Black Lives Matter on the court. Um, it's, I mean, God, what is happening with the Super Bowl? It's it's a cluster of, <laughs> of, of visual signifiers. Black bodies matter as long as we can exploit them and we don't want to recognize Kaepernick and et cetera. So I'm really, really interested in this, this, this both this idea of plastic representation, which is both specifically about visual signifiers, um, but also really about a mode of thinking about cultural specificity and how cultural industries are trying to respond with an even more hollow, hollower version of, of, of plasticity that you've already sort of pointed out in the work. Um, and, I, and I think, and I'll, I'll get to that in a second, but um, the issue with that is also when we have this moment of plastic that is really pushed up right up against substance. And I think I'll talk about that later when we think about what happened with Naomi Osaka um, at the US Open um, and how she responded to um, um, the, the reporters who were asking her questions about her face mask. So, yes. Thank you. Okay, Vicki. Um, uh, everybody, please meet Finn, Finley who has a, a squeaky toy uh, in his mouth, um, a fox pelt, as it were. Um, here, join on in, Finn. So uh, the readings, I, I just submitted a collection of uh, news and business press uh, sources that were about the economic impact. <laughs> Sorry. I never thought I'd be that person, but um, the economic, Finn really does want to join in. I mean, you know, he helps me work. So, <clears throat> so about the economic impact of uh, sports and sports tourism, uh, particularly as exemplified by baseball, focused on um, St. Louis and its surrounding regional markets. Um, so 
what I've been really interested in and troubling over in the COVID moment is, well, prior to COVID, I was very much troubled by the ways in which particularly the Midwest uh, so-called Rust Belt cities had uh, several had staked their economic viability on sports tourism and the uh, urban sports district, um, which has of course a long history of kind of uh, hollowing out uh, extant neighborhoods in downtown. Uh, St. Louis is an interestingly different um, blighted region in that respect in terms of a much, a very long history of having blighted this, the space where uh, the stadium complex now resides. Um, and we can talk later about the ways in which that space is being reclaimed by civic activists in really interesting ways. But in any event, prior to COVID, you know, there'd been so much uh, propped up on sports built environment and the extended sports media ecology um, that, you know, now that the US economy is fundamentally service-based economy, we see how those, those cities uh, and entire regions are now even more so gutted, um, having been originally gutted by the sort of death of industry and now uh, by the situation where uh, the service economy can, can no longer be what, what thrives. Um, so, I also included uh, an essay about the ways in which paradoxically at the same moment that Major League Baseball is deeply investing in these media campuses uh, for its franchises, such as in Atlanta and in St. Louis and so forth, um, you have it uh, eviscerating and uh, eliminating the small market uh, sort of teams and uh, stadiums that had previously served as kind of the pipeline or backbone um, for that system. So this is of course, uh, I think analogous to the television industry itself. Um, and I see the sports, sports media industries and the US television industry as complete historic and cultural analogs um, in terms of this moment of kind of central, increasing centralization of these sort of large urban civic spaces, uh, while at the same time kind of gutting out rural America uh, sites for baseball um, as a kind of community gathering place. I also wanted to say that, um, you know, Reese um, sort of got me thinking about writing about sports media a very long time ago in ways that connect with um, his work on the populist aesthetic, but also this question about sites of media information and disinformation. Um, because I feel as if one of the reasons I shared the, the map from the New York Times is this way in which there's this historic understanding of sports as being uh, a site of a kind of sincere commitment in terms of uh, questions of identity, a kind of site, a space that's undeniably sincere in some way. And this is something that philosophically I've also been kind of troubling over, um, but uh, yeah. Well, thank you. It's interesting, you know, when we were talking with the, the round table group on cinema last week and talking about the 1918 pandemic, and of course it meant the you know, um, smaller studios, smaller players were edged out and the consolidation of the studio system and, you know, centralization was, you know, product of post-pandemic times. And, you know, of course we think about this with a lot of industries 
you know, are we only going to have McDonald's and Chipotle when this is all done? Um, but anyways, let me shift. Uh, I wanted to direct my, my next question to Vicki um, and follow up on a little bit on what you've just talked about. Um, in your work, and certainly in your talk last year at the conference, um, you argued that television remains a crucial site for the deliberation over questions of community, as you were just saying. Sports, you argue, are a great connector, touching people at a gut level with values that seem lacking in today's leaders and missing from day-to-day -day experiences of life, among them empathy and optimism, strength and decisiveness, authenticity, faith, and a sense of community, belonging, and purpose. That's a quote. So what has changed this past year when sports have gone virtual? Yeah, I mean, so that quote is is drawn, obviously, from the sort of grounding mythologies of the imagined power of sports, right? But, and certainly exactly the kinds of things that we hear the NFL parrot in terms of this, uh, you know, current initiative that gaslights us all, right? Um, and uh, the NBA commissioner, for instance, Adam Silver, recently made that claim about the ways in which the NBA was more more a more functional nation state right now basically uh in terms of global politics than uh and he was referencing of course the prior u.s administration um, when he made those comments um so i think obviously these are like really powerful mythologies which is why media scholars are interested in unpacking them um but i do think it's important to look at you know uh the power of that um, and how it's actually enacted in, in daily life. So for instance, locally right during the lockdown, both the Lakers and the Dodgers won championships. Um, and while a lot of press was dedicated to, I think rightly, um, to blaming sort of the outdoor celebrations and watch parties to being super spreader events um, and therefore their fans as being irresponsible, um, I also think that those gatherings clearly spoke to the continued, like, the power of the idea that those teams are are actually representative of um, a particularity about LA-ness uh, that people are seeking, particularly in moments of crisis, right? So what is it that LA does still share together during crisis uh, and that that's what those celebrations really tapped? Um, and again, I also think it's really important here to think about the ways in which the WNBA in particular, but also the NBA, um, were really vocal in support of Black Lives Matter um, in ways that actually had um, tangible action, unlike, I think, the NFL, where, um, you know, voter registration and access drives on the site of uh, NBA uh, stadiums um, so here, the, again, the built environment of sports, which, uh, you know, again, opening up this week for vaccination sites and so forth. So I'm really interested in the way in which this sort of privatization of the last 20 years in particular has led uh, sports entities to be seen as civic entities, um, to be seen as public servants. Um, so, uh, and, and the ways in which that's, that's emotionally does fill a void. Um, for things that have been completely uh, defunded in terms of the public realm. Yeah, interesting. We'll come back around to this again too, but uh, Samantha, I hope that there's nothing buzzing around. Um, 
you've also written extensively on issues of race and gender and representation in cinema and media with a focus on sports. And so what is your view on changes to professional sports since the pandemic? Um, how do you see your theorization of what you call a critical muscle memory in a very specific sense, a critical muscle memory in the activism of athletes throughout this period? Such a great question, Patrice, because I think it's a two part. So when I think about professional sports since the pandemic, it was first, you know, heralded with the bubble and the wobble um, that the NBA could, could yeah. get it right. Yeah. Right. The WNBA got it right yeah. that if we were going to have to move forward for a lot of different reasons, um, both in terms of their own contracts and how they needed to play in order to not have to renegotiate um, with the union. I mean, the union have to renegotiate with um, the owners. They needed to, to finish the season. Um, I, I think that there's an element of, oh, everyone was safe. But I think that is where I was thinking about what we see is also not what we see because everyone was safe in the bubble and the wobble not we have like we never took like the actual full view of what was happening you know um um at disney in florida and we know that florida is just raging with numbers that are you know not even being you know calculated fully. So there was a way in which we first thought, oh, sports is really responding, particularly um, with the, the NBA and the WNBA being so fantastic about it. I think Vicky will talk about the MLB was so different because they were traveling and it was, you know, case after case after case, or these, this team can't play, this game has to be delayed. Um, and so TV wise, we thought we could, we could enjoy this diversion because we needed this diversion because it was also being brought to us safely while doing this kind of signifying that the lives mattered of the people who were there and that overall you know black lives did matter and when i was referencing back of wanting to read Kristen's piece about plastic representation all i could think about was how fake everything was yeah. right they took a theme park and they created courts and all of this stuff and all of this fakery including the the whole Black Lives Matter is not fake, but the 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 plasticness of trying to paint that onto the entire court to give the symbol of this. And so I was thinking of that, but with the interesting juxtaposition, and this I think gets to the second part about critical muscle memory, which is about, you know, this remembering this embodied history of Black athletic activism really gets to the ways in which when we saw the wildcat strike with the NBA, and more importantly, and I do want to signify more importantly, we saw everything that the WNBA did, um, which is I'm talking after Jacob Blake was shot coming in with the shirts that had all of the bullet like this, all of this. It's, it was this extreme, extreme reminder that the visual signifier that was plastic and hollow, that is no longer on the court, that is no equality on the back of the T-shirt thing. It was a quick reminder that these these athletes can take not only can take control of a narrative and a discourse, but can take control of television. So when the game doesn't play, right? And then ESPN is forced <laughs> to have to have this conversation about why the game is not playing. And all the people are, then everybody is righteously upset. And, and, and finally, we're getting actual real commentary about why we have the words on, uh, on the court, um, why this is happening, because emotions are hitting um, the cultural moment 
in that particular kind of way. And I see that happening there. And I also want to just bring up very quickly Naomi Osaka at um, the US Open. So there's an interesting moment because I first worried, and I love Naomi Osaka, though shout out to um, Serena Williams playing in the Australian Open tonight, um, is that I was worried about, again, the way in which TV can likes to use bodies as visual signifiers, as symbolic substitutes to substantive social change, right? It's how we have rehabilitated our memory of John Carlos and um, Tommy Smith. Oh, we loved it. It's like the team. <laughs> they were eviscerated on television, right? All of these things happen. But what she did was so interestingly, not only by wearing the names of these victims of police brutality, but when asked, you know, a terrible question, what do you want us to learn? She said, what have you learned in my silence? What have you, what, what, what have you learned? Tell me. Um, and I think that was, an, again, an interesting way in which we're seeing the juxtaposition of what could be um, a symbolic substitute for social change be re-embodied in these athletes who are then using the medium to actually carry their message, which is as opposed to, you know, the medium being the message and it being actually that the game must go on. Now, the fact that the games are now going on and they're a mess and this things get recouped very quickly. But um, but I just think that's a really, really, it's been really interesting sort of standout moments mm -hmm. in all of this time. Yeah. So thanks, Patrice. Yeah. So Reese, and talking further about fakery and plasticity, in your book, Fox Populism, you make the point that there's nothing inherently conservative about the populist style of journalism that Fox News deploys. In your paper that you presented last year, you explored left-wing populism and its manifestation primarily in digital media online. So how is your thinking or has it changed or evolved given the ever more intensive polarization of news, um, whether on television or online? I mean, I was just uh, prior to our roundtable watching uh, the first day of the impeachment trial. And, um, you know, we could talk about, pop, you know, polarization, popularization, and so on. But I, I wonder if you would just reflect on that um, and your work there. Yeah, I'm gonna really try to restrain myself and not go off on like <laughs> massive tangent. But um, I think in the time since the conference, I just dug deeper into the literature around YouTube and around specifically like the flashpoints of popular commentary on YouTube, which was, you know, first off in the wake of uh, Donald Trump's 2016 victory for all the different theories that were posed of why he won. One of the major ones was social media. And then if you fast forward to 2018 is really when YouTube faces maybe its harshest criticism in the platform's history, when it started to be seen as a breeding ground for uh, far right extremism, right? So there was all these stories about young men being radicalized, right? On, on YouTube. And what, a lot of these analysis point to is the role of the algorithms. And unfortunately, again, I kind of hinted at this already, they, they um, resuscitated these kind of hypodermic needle kind of models where um, like these young men were blank slates, right? They were otherwise moderate people. Uh, mm -hmm. And then the algorithm sent them down rabbit holes uh, and that made them radical as opposed to possibly the more disturbing um, ideas that they were actually already that way and YouTube just fed the demand, right? The community was already far right, already white nationalists, right? Um, and so 
but but yet it still got me thinking about the the kind of to try to break from this myopic understanding of YouTube and social media and its role in radicalizing people uh, and, and kind of step back to possibly a more consequential technological moment, which was the advent of cable television and partisan cable television mm-hmm. and the way that the explosion of channel options and then subsequently an aggregate explosion of partisanship in general, partisan hyperpartisanship, right? Um, was basically the grounding for what the algorithms are picking up on in the 2000s and 2010s. So in other words, I, I started to see that, that these linkages between cable news and what you see on YouTube are far tighter than I imagined. And, and even both, not just stylistically, but the political economic logic that drives um, cable news is very, very similar. You know, again, all this talk about algorithms, you know, what was cable news? Right. What 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 changed the post network shift? It was that we stopped focusing on the size of the audience and the, these kind of mass ratings and more about viewer intensity, more about viewer duration, viewer loyalty. And that's really not that different than user engagement, which is the watchword for the social media industries. Right. So, for example, um, the reason why a far right channel like Tim Pool or Steven Crowder or, or whoever on YouTube can sometimes outrank an established news organization is because they're not going off of most views, which is a kind of throwback to the broadcasting era rating metric, right? Most views, most people that watched it. And instead they're looking at subscribers, which is a loyalty metric. Instead, they're looking at user engagement in the comment sections, which is a you know, it's more about activity and intensity, right? And so I, I think that, you know, so that's that got me thinking about these political economic connections and in the way in which the kind of style of political commentary that the conservative media industry um, introduced in the late 80s and 90s really set the stage for the kind of cultures, hyper-partisan cultures that we see online. Uh, the second thing that I started thinking about is also that, So really the 90s is a really important moment to understand, like we need to go back to the 90s, right? If we want to understand, you know, where we're at in terms of this culture of polarization and and this discussion on on social media and radicalization. Um, And and I think, and I'll I'll end, I'll, I'll just quickly put it out there, but the 90s wasn't just defined by technological uh, transformations in the television industry. And it wasn't just defined by political polarization with Newt Gingrich and the Republican Revolution. It was also a tabloid decade. So it's also, we see the proliferation of tabloid media styles that are driven toward sensation, right? And, and, and you know, you see Ricky Lake, Jerry Springer, you know, but is, is, is the, you know, supermarket tabloid headline about, uh, uh, Bobbitt's severed penis that different from clickbait is the paternity test on Mari Povich that different than a viral video, right? So it still, it still fits into this, what sociologist Laura Grinstoff called the money shot, right? It's still this, it's this way in which you create good television through this su- supposedly, right? Spontaneous, spontaneous explosion of emotion, right? And so, and then capturing that and, and it creates good ratings. So I think, you know, we have to go back to the 90s, right, to understand the way in which these tabloid logics, these commercial logics are still driving polarization today. Uh, and in and, and, and the left, there's a manifestation of it on the left, which I don't necessarily see as bad, right? But 
Um, so I can talk about like the good things. There are some good storylines about YouTube and there are some good developments that have happened. Um, uh, and I can speak on that more, but that's, that's kind of what I've been diving into is really looking at the way the nineties is much more tightly connected to the 20, the 2010s and the, what the twenties, I guess it's weird to say, uh, then, then I think the literature, the current literature is recognizing. Well, just as, just as a quick, just follow up in your article that you, uh, posted for this, um, round table, um, listen to your gut. I mean, I found it really fascinating how you talk about the 90s moment and how through Fox News and Roger Ailes that once the whole question of bias was um, debated and put it under question, it led then to the question of objectivity itself and that this was all well predated our current time. Um, I wonder if you'd want to say just a little bit about that. You say, yeah, the effect would ultimately drain not only the meaning of bias, but that of objectivity itself. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it's, you know, what we see in the, the late 80s and the 90s is the, you know, the once dominant paradigm of the high modern journalism style, you know, Walter Cronkite, uh, which was industry standard for news increasingly becomes like a boutique. It becomes squeezed into smaller and smaller markets, right? That tend to be more politically liberal. And that the, the, the ingenious or diabolical thing that Rupert Murdoch did is that he exploited existing dimension, uh, uh, tensions between the tabloid press and the prestige press, but then he made that a partisan issue. He reframed that as liberal versus conservative. And in doing that, he was able to repackage very unpopular conservative policies as on the side of the majority or, you know, supported by the working class, right? And so it was through that tabloid um, style and, and, and the loss of this objective kind of tradition uh, that he was able to pull that off. But, you know, at the present day, though, I don't necessarily think, you know, I don't necessarily su subscribe to this idea that the way we fix this problem is by simply reasserting the high modern paradigm and the objective regime. Um, you know, I think liberals have tried this since David Brock and John Stewart. I mean, they've been saying Fox is not objective. Fox is not real news, right? It's not like this is a novel idea to reinsert, you know, uh, professional journalistic standards. And that's why, you know, I see more promise or at least a way to kind of create a, a, a more complex set of strategies by considering the role of style. How do you appeal to popular audiences? How do you change these systems of positionalities that the right has set up? So you're not unwittingly like reinforcing their terms. Um, and yeah, so anyway, sorry. Uh, no, thank you. That's really, really interesting. So Kristen, and this, this is a, a nice segue to my question for you. Um, last year, you spoke about black women's online publics at, at our conference. And you're also a scholar whose work focuses on race and representation within the Hollywood film and television industry. So I wondered if you would talk to us about how you see the demand, how the demand for social justice has been conducted under extreme conditions of populist nationalism, resurgent white supremacy, and social isolation. How have online communities of color responded to the crises of the past year? What have you been following? Oh, yeah, uh, it seems like it's, it's been a lot, you know, I mean, I think to, you know, to piggyback off of what Sam was talking about, you know, in terms of questions of, you know, what are 
are symbolic actions and what are, what is the symbolic you know um, perspective of these uh, black women in online publics with it, you know in the in light of George Floyd and you know the summer of 2020 like what are the re what are versus the sort of real um, questions of 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 uh, of, of what can be what can be demanded and what can be asked for, uh, you know, from what I from what I've seen, um, you know, I think the the most interesting piece is the connection between um, people uh, the the question about Breonna Taylor, right, and the use of Breonna Taylor's name involved in you know you know, try, you know, like the, the sort of this, I don't even know what the, the word is, but sort of, if you're focused on this or like, I have a, an, I have a, a great recipe for chili steak bites. And then it's like, you know, Breonna Taylor's, you know, murderers have not been arrested yet. Like, so, you know, like the, the, the movement between the, like the, the use of her name as invoking this sort of, uh, as invoking a, a cause and a demand um, seems to, to be, one of the more prevalent trends, and also thinking about um, the the fact that of her of her body that is exploited, right? That it is her image that we are using to stand in for justice, to stand in for you know all of the the thing again the things that are desired in 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 pursuit of justice, and you know in her name, and you know people buying t-shirts and all these things. It's an interesting moment because what I saw was a lot of why are y'all, why are y'all um, profiting off of the body of Breonna Taylor? And, you know, the image and it's become so important um, to you as a means of commodification. And I find that really striking because it's not that I think it's untrue, but what I think it does do is prove that we do we can distinguish between what is plastic and what is not and we can make that and, and we can um uh, not only make the distinction but we we not and not only recognize it but we can also tell when it is not genuine which is interesting to me because so much of um of of what of of what is desired from lay audiences and critics regarding you know progress in industry with with race and bodies is so located in a plastic kind of logic it's located in well we have the bodies we have the images you have we now have you know a an academy awards eligibility set up you know for 2024 that is you know designed to try to increase bodily numbers um through these really sort of strange um, criteria that can be met, it can, the, where, where the status quo can still be met if they do all these other things, right? So it's it's all like the, the, the plasticity of this moment is in all of these, it, it is, is, you can find them in all these far reaching places. I mean, I think it all sort of, but it all stems back to the question that I think that, that uh, Sam raises is, you know, like, and, and that, you know, you asked Patrice, which is, you know, largely what, what does it, what does it mean? What is real? You know, what is actual questions of change and social justice and what, what movement, what can movement do versus the symbolic responses and the sort of quick fixes that we might uh, translate as real and translate as meaningful. And I think that that becomes, you know, the, the key question. And, and I am 
I'm very interested to see over the next couple of months how that resolves or if it resolves or if um, the if if black women or and, and black audiences in general um, if they continue to to, um, to 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 spot the jig or if they you know do what what we have commonly done which is you know it absorbs and we go on oh look this is a, me a measure of progress and we've we've made it or we are making it so I'm curious too yeah well this is for everybody um and maybe I'll, everybody can decide if they want to answer it or not but I, I think I'd like Vicky to respond first um so one of the key qu questions of our February conference was how television itself remains a crucial site for the deliberation over questions of citizenship and public discourse. So how do you define television in this moment and where do you see its value? So Vicki, you wanna take it? Yeah, so I've been thinking in, in my own work um, about the ways in which, again, historically, economically, and symbolically, US TV and US professional sports are analogous institutions. Um, and in that sense, following uh, Brent Hutchins and David Rao, um, how our traditional thinking about sports and media has to transform into uh, sports as media within a broader leisure framework. And um, what uh, Reese just mentioned about this sort of 1990s as being a really pivotal moment um, in terms of a transition uh, economically, as well as in terms of the media, in terms of audience address. Um, one of the things that syncs up in, tr in terms of sports um, at this time, as well as this just, I, I, well, I guess across the economy and across the media industries, including sports. Um, this is a moment of transformation to this kind of focus on experience economies and the question of emotional capitalism, right? and. That's where I think Reese's points about um, the the narrowness of cable, right? Um, and uh, it's funny because you know you look back. I, I Reese, in your in his own work, has talked about how this isn't a new phenomenon, but it's a much more concentrated phenomenon post 1990s, I think. And and that the other, because you know you look at like it back in the files of say the Kennedy administration. Um, and you see all of the letters that were written into the Kennedy administration about uh, sort of East Coast elites trying to impose a culture upon like the middle of America and so forth. And so those same tensions have always historically been with us, but now you see this kind of intensification, I think in part because of the sort of nicheification and, and uh, you know, brand in hand uh, media, um, which gets increasingly more and more personalized and individuated uh, but uh, I have just lost the thread completely. Um, <laughs> I was liking it. I was liking it. <laughs> I guess, I guess, you know, what I'm interested in is this, like, rec this mythology that sports, which is a very traditional U.S. mythology. It's a very kind of also New Deal kind of log era logic politically uh, that sports can somehow 
is somehow the thread that unites, you know, this diver a diverse public, right? Um, and so I think, you know, we see uh, on in the Super Bowl, for instance, I mean, all season, in the NFL's sort of um, ultimate plasticity, I think, um, in, I, I, I hope I'm not uh, misappropriating Kristen's work, but I really believe that this notion of approximating a political voice, but ultimately totally hollow, is the one of the better descriptions I could think of of the NFL in this well, historically, but particularly in this moment. Um, and so, uh, yeah, this, uh, all of the press around the Super Bowl in advance of the Super Bowl this, this year in particular was about this sort of uh, the NFL's whole, um, you know, it takes all of us initiative uh, partnered with Jay-Z and Rock Nation. Um, but uh, that that it ultimately is this sort of investment in a communicative capitalism um, and plasticity. But again, I've lost the thread completely. Well, the question was, how, you know, how do you see television as a remaining a crucial site for the deliberation of these questions of citizenship and public discourse? I mean, I know that for me, I, during this pandemic times, I mean, I'm, I I'm a very avid television watcher and always have been. Um, but, you know, I became, you want to talk, Reese, about intensity. I mean, I, I even could see, like, I watch things, I go onto Twitter, I try, you know, Facebook became far less interesting to me because, you know, had this sense of impending doom, which was, you know, also not, not illogical, um, that, you know, trying to find out what is going on, what is really going on. And, I was said in another interview I did a while ago, like I just couldn't really get into fiction over the pandemic. I, the idea of entering into another world, I, I remember sitting in my living room sometime in, in uh, April when, when uh, the coronavirus task force and Trump got up and at one point he put on this the video and you know it was pure propaganda. It, you know, it was a, a little bit like at the June 6th you know, when the, the, the video that was put together for that. And I, I got up and I just turned off the television. I mean, which it was like, I can't see, I can't stand seeing this. This is pure, unadulterated, borrowed from Nazi propaganda. And I couldn't believe that this was on network television. And so I wondered if you would, you know, talk about that, you know, how television, to me, television has been critical during the pandemic, but there's still this, um, for me, it's about, about not about pleasure. It's really about anxiety. <laughs> I mean, I think right? there's a bit of I think there's a bit of both, right? So, um, you know, I'm, I'm thankfully trapped in this house and um, hiding from my children, and uh, um, it's really it's been interesting to think about how we have talked about, you know, television as this domestic medium, right? So it's in the home, it's a, an appliance, it has all this history and domesticating function. And then to be trapped in your home with this domestic device, <laughs> that is literally my only portal to any other world <laughs> um, beyond, uh, you know, the, 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 the Ithaca loop. And now that it's snowing, um, really beyond these walls. Um, so it's been really interesting to feel to feel reoriented with TV being the centerpiece of my life um, with all of its ancillary parts of TV, you know, 
uh, through my computer, TV on TikTok. We're of course watching what's happening with Gorilla Girl, um, Gorilla Glue Girl. Oh my God. Closely. Oh my um, but, um, you know, or seeing people, again, also move from these other fragmented um, textual spaces, you know, where the money reside from a TikTok to a, you know, to the Super Bowl um, kind of experience. And I think that there's, the value of it has been a mix, you know, a, a mixed bag because we have been, I would say, craving content because everything stopped, right? So, you know, they didn't bring back younger for me. And that's the way I like my my New York 30-something white girls. I want them in the day, the, the star production. They didn't bring back my shows. And so I am, I'm like, where's my content? Where's my content? And that's Interestingly enough, as Vicky points out, thinking about these industries together and sports still being so particularly both um, financially important for for TV, but also um, one of the few things where the show still did go on. And at the same time, the the value has lied in 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 how everything that you feel you can be connected to sometimes feel through this watching the inauguration, you know, being, having to be forced to watch the insurrection in real time. Like it was all of these things. I think there's an interesting revaluation of like, do you own a television? Are you plugged in? Because that's the, where else would you plug in? I recognize there's books. Like I get it, but reading <laughs> I recommend it highly, but like, you know, it, it's, <laughs> you can't go to the movies that I can't even understand the concept. Why would I go into a theater? I was already scared about theaters. I'm a theater, but my couch <laughs> with the big screen, um, I think we're, re we're seeing a value and in, in, in the kinds of pleasures, even though, as you point out, Patrice, how it can be really an anxious um, peril at the same time, because you don't know what you're going to end up viewing. Um, yeah, no, I, you know, I hear you. I, 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 a few years ago, there was an article in the New York Times where A.O. Scott and Manola Dargis were talking about what is the future of cinema. And, you know, they, the last line, A.O. Scott says, you know, there will always be a cinema as long as we respond to the primordial uh, human urge to leave the house. And when I read that, I thought, yeah, spoken like a true New Yorker, because I thought, you know, <laughs> all I want to do is come home and take my clothes off and sit down and watch TV. I mean, I don't have, I, my primordial urge is to uh, be at home. But of course, now that's what we are, you know. Now I want to do a ritual burning of the clothes I've been wearing during the pandemic, you know, the same thing every day and um, just other, it's just been very strange. Anyways, let me move on. I, this is connected to the last question. Um, and anybody's, um, able to oh Reese did you have something to say I just want to make just real quick um, yes, just the connection I see uh, between uh, Vicky's points and in this question about how do you define television what's the role of television I, I I forgot the authors there was a mate that amazing article that one of you submitted the television the televisionary um, yes yeah, that's Randy Monk Payton I love Florida. that piece. um uh so it, it she touched on some 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 of this right but you know, I think the way that Vicky's talking about civic institutions being replaced by sports, right? Um, I would say that's happened to our political parties, that media channels and networks have usurped the traditional party roles of candidate selection of, I mean, the various party functions, right? So I just add that, you know, the, the, 
the term they use in political communication is mediatization. Um, and it's almost like for a politician to win or lose, their success is contingent on creating viral moments or, or getting access to a major television platform and then being good television performers, right? So I think there is a parallel between what Vicky is talking about in, in terms of civic institutions, community support institutions, and just what's happened to our politics writ large. So I just, I'll end with that. That's all, that's all I wanted to, to add. That's an excellent, it's an excellent point because they are so invocated and you often feel like it's, people want to say it's tribal, but it really feels more like a, a kind of sports competition between teams and you, whatever. Anyways, um, so a connection across each of your work is the question of community and the possibilities of activism for, or for those in, um, those communities to activate for change. So how have you seen possibilities for activists, activism transform in a streaming Zoom lockdown pandemic moment, which paradoxically has also re-energized mobilization on the streets? I mean, maybe Kristen, you wanna talk about that as you're sitting and watching uh, you know, over the summer. Yeah, I mean, Brian. I think I I I think that there is something to. Um, well, I mean, I, I I was I was talking on a panel a couple of days ago about um, fandom and how I think about this moment, you know, of uh, of of both the the, the folks um, participating in the insurrection and the the ways that the information that they get through, you know, Q drops and all these things, uh, and their loyalty to their fan to their loved object who is in this uh, who is Donald Trump. I think about that in terms of fandoms and sort of the ways that fandoms operate, the behaviors and the labor and the the commitment and the the reading and the fighting and, and the infighting across fandoms, like all of that feels familiar. And of course, I, 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 I do not deign to pathologize the beauty of fandom um, in, you know, uh, with, 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 the, with the, the grossness of what is happening um, uh, with, with, this, with this particular political party. I don't want to, to, to equivocate it or to, to, uh, completely, but I do think that there is a way that we can understand part of the processes, including that of activism through the lens of fandom. And I would, but I want to shift the focus because I think we spend so much time you know, because they are the they are these are the people who are centered. These are the people who, um, ironically, for you know, like the the fandom of uh, fandom is exists to as a space for other of, of otherness, and we often other white men like they they get to feel special in this particular moment. But I want to sort of redirect that attention to the people who are actually othered, the people in fandoms who don't get to be seen very often, and and often that is black and brown women um, who are in these fandom spaces. I am like to sort of bring back the the question that you asked earlier, Patrice. One of the things that I noticed, um, one of the things that I've been noticing um, is black women uh, fans, or and not just black women, but primarily and predominantly black women fans of uh, like Kamala Harris, the, the K-High, for example, and how they were, how they were able to push Kamala as a candidate, you know, for president when she dropped out a year ago, then to sort of move her to start quietly forging alliances with the Biden camp to bring her into the vice presidency, right? Like that was a, a, a the, the moves in that group, the ways that they talked and the ways that they fought online and, and, and um, with 
other with all the other candidates uh fans right like the them constantly fighting with the the Bernie fans um, the, the, or and with the Pete, the Buttigieg folks, like constantly sort of in conversation with them, using the traits that they got from largely being part of the beehive, you know, like bringing those skills into conversation and using that work, using that labor, figuring out how to sort of make these really cogent political points about why Kamala is necessary and why her, um, all the defensive positions they would they would uh, uh, rally uh, around in order to protect her from people who called her a cop or whatever. Like that all was all that active, that all that is activism, all that kind of fan labor is toward this particular cause. And so it's really interesting to see that movement. And then of course, you know, that movement then, you know, continued with what you saw happening in Georgia with Stacey Abrams and Latasha and, and all of those folks, Latasha Brown and all those folks who t- helped turn Georgia blue. Like I, that is the work, not just the work of, you know, black women on ground, but wa- the work of black women um, in these spaces. And so it's, for me, the mediated piece is watching fandom, watching all of the tricks of the trade, seeing all of the conversations, all of the shipping that they do between Kamala and Doug. My God, like we love Doug. And now, you know, we've memed Kamala. We did it, Joe. I mean, we have all of these things that we have, like all of this is, all of this is fan labor, but all of this fan labor is a, a kind of activism that, I think you can see sort of break off into various components like the Brianna Taylor group. And, you know, um, you have, you know, Portia Williams from um, Real Housewives of Atlanta sort of becoming a part of this activism and sort of cueing reality television to, to give a damn about these particular things. So that I find is really striking. And that is the kind of activism triggered by mediation that I think is really fascinating that we don't really often pay attention to. We're so focused on QAnon that we don't really give enough attention to K-Hive or, and, and how they are um, creating and build, building these huge networks of, of, of information and um, their own sort of calm response team. So it's really fascinating to see that. Yeah, yeah that's really, really great analysis. Um, could I just make a yes, please, connection please. to that? I mean, TYT, like the Young Turks, right? Is it what's often forgotten to Kristen's point in all this talk about right-wing radicalization of like young white men is it it that it, it's basically overcrowded the discussion on the left-wing communities on YouTube. There's not a lot of research on on uh, these fan communities and that's how I would describe them as well, right? And the way that the channels are successful is they do cultivate, they do all the things that an entertainment like Buffy the Vampire Slayer kind of would do, right? They 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 have merchandise, right? That's an important. The fans, to, you know, make their own like signs of their favorite hosts, and and you know, so for every Caleb Kane story you have of a young white man's radicalized, you know, you don't hear about the fact that uh, AOC Alexandra Ocasio Cortez largely got involved as a Keystone Pipeline protester because of the coverage of TYT and other left-wing channels on YouTube. So she was a fan of these kind of independent left-wing media on YouTube. So it's kind of the same thing that provides a platform for these horrible far-right groups actually opened up also a space for, you know, social democratic, progressive, uh, or just socialist uh, types of politics that don't get an airing on cable television, right? And and usually, and they tend to use fan 
kind of base strategies more than MSNBC or CNN or um, uh, you know mainstream cable and network news. So I think that's a very poignant connection. The way that fan communities can turn into activist communities and vice versa. It's a fluid connection. But just to, to, to jump in just quickly to, to what Reese was talking about, I mean, to and to tie to Patrice's point about like, you know, like pleasure versus like anxiety. One of the things that I noticed is, you know, my own fandom of like being an, uh, an avid MSNBC watcher. Like I don't, I tell people like, I, I just can't, I don't, I don't, I can't watch reruns. Like I just, that's just not comforting to me. I don't really have my, all like Sam, all my shows are gone. I don't have anything to watch and I don't like anything that y'all watch. So I'm stuck from the, from, so all I have is like eight to 10 o'clock, my eight to 10 o'clock, well now, seven to ten o'clock block on MSNBC because I have to watch Joy Reid then I watch Chris Hayes then I watch Rachel Maddow and then I watch you know Lawrence and I watch Brian Williams like I have my whole that's what I watch and to it's to the point now where you can go on to Twitter and like I have conversations with random fans about Joy's hair and why she did that to her head and did she not put on her eyeshadow today? Why didn't she put on her eyeshadow? Like, wh- why is she wearing brown eyeshadow with that outfit? Like, why does she look like Prince from the New Revolution? Like, why? Like, we have these conversations about her when Rachel's uh, partner uh, had COVID and nearly died. We all are sitting together. It felt like we were all together watching Rachel cry as we cried with her. So it's an interesting, like, in the midst of like us learning about the news and us being focused on, you know all of the things that are happening and the trauma, the daily actual trauma of it that creates that anxiety that at some point, yes, you do get overfull and have to turn it off. At the same time, there are these other moments and it's not activism per se, but there are these other moments where you have turned into like, this is now my show. And now I'm going to talk about like, I don't have anything else to say about Rachel's same jacket, but I can talk about her eyeshadow or I can say, oh, it is markedly different when you don't, when you're not in the studio, Rachel, like we can see that you don't know what to do with your hair. Like there are all these different kinds of conversations that we have with, like I have on a daily basis with fans about these people who are now the only people I really watch on television. Well, let me move to, I think what might be maybe the last question, because I see we don't have a lot of questions from the audience, but there's a couple, so I want to at least make space for that. Um, But anybody, this is open to anybody who wants to answer it, but the pen, the the previous question, you know, what is television? How, how do, you know, what is activism? Um, As we know and feel very deeply, the pandemic has locked down campuses, the country, and the world in uneven ways. So how do we conceive of audience in a post-broadcast, unevenly resourced, and disparate geographic sense? It's a question of audience. This makes me think about what Reese and Kristen have have said about, um, well, respectively, fandoms and, and subscribers and loyalty. Right, so people are plugged in to what you, what Kristen has explained, where she'll exactly be, um, you know, Monday through Friday from the seven to ten o'clock block, um, and so like audiences are still quite fragmented, but also extremely loyal to their content. But it also makes me think about all of the people who are not watching. So one of the big things that that is marking this moment, and even as I was talking about this sort of 
interesting um, underscoring of TV as a domestic medium is that so many people are at home caring for other people or doing the work of grief. Um, and so there is there 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 are gaps of people who are no longer plugging in to um, to to enjoy um, or to to entertain or to to gain information. And so it's it, it's it's really a question of to me um, how how would we how would we even measure such a thing. Right. I mean, there's there's obviously ways in which we measure, you know, audiences or who's streaming later and or how many Netflix hits, you know, Bridgerton has gotten this number of people have started watching that or something like that. But um, but I think but I, but I keep thinking about everyone. Everyone is an audience, but there are entire swaths of people who are who are not viewing. This is not just ambient television. I think there's like a new word we're looking for of what does it mean for or TV to be playing or to have to hear, you know, the Paw Patrol over and over again in the background. Like, what is that? Um, that that kind of that kind of noise um, it, um, for 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 viewers who are non-viewers right now. Um, beyond the loyalists or the subscribers or, or the people like me who are like, maybe we will get back into RuPaul's Drag Race. Let's start from the top, you know, um, things like that. Yeah. Others have comments on this? I, I think that's just a great point. I don't know what how much to add. I mean, it, it does follow um, the statistical research, right? Where most people are not in the cable market, right? They're entertainment seekers or they're checked out completely. There's a book called uh, Changing Minds or Changing Channels. And the whole thesis is people are just changing channels. They don't want to watch political media um, or they're in, especially maybe in this moment right now, as you mentioned, uh, because people are dealing with so much trauma and so much suffering and also sharing rooms, right? Office yeah. you know, rooms, viewing spaces have become offices and vice versa, uh, childcare, um, you know, yeah, it disrupts and not to mention um, just the shift to phones where people are cutting the cord and they're not watching, they're not sitting down. I, I was like Kristen, I used to, I used to watch cable news when I was studying it and it was more like the traditional appointment viewing. I'd sit down, I'd plow through, you know, all my cable shows and I cut the cord, you know, and uh, studying YouTube and I have a radically different viewing behavior. Uh, and then combined with my kids in the house, you know, so there's all these factors and then the gender dynamics and in, inside of a, a house um, and inequalities there. Um, and so, yeah, it's such a great point. I don't really, I don't know how much I have to add, but I, I, I fully um, appreciate that. I would say, you know, part of the reason, that's part of the reason why I think Sweatfest is such an interesting sort of um, additive to the conversation because it provides, because it's, it's Instagram and it relies on you having, you know, having an Instagram connection, being able to uh, it, it, it requires you to be in whatever space you're in. It doesn't require more of you. You could, I've done it. I've, I've, I've done my little exercise in, in my bedroom. I've done it in the living room. Like I'll find a little corner if I need to um, away from people to have my little, for, to have my 45 minute, you know, exercise routine. But I think it is one of those things that is for a while, at least initially in its early iteration, you know, it was week, it was twice a week, you could go in at 12 o'clock. And, you know, he would be, you know, in his little short shorts, and we'd be ready to go. And so that would be 
Like this, it, it carved out a routine that I think was just so absolute, that was so needed. And it, and it, again, like, I think there was something, there's something about embodiment that is particularly important in this, in this moment where you can, you can't go to the gym. You can't, you know, like you can't, you can walk around, but there's only I saw someone say that there's just, I've had enough of taking a walk. And like it, all of these, these things that were at one point, we used to be like, yeah, these are the things are the things that you can do to kind of relax or take some, take a moment. There's something about being in the space and looking at the top of his, um, looking at the top of, you know, the, the, the live space and seeing like there are 5,000 people from all over the world who are doing these exercises with you and you're following, well, you know, watching them have responses and, and thinking to yourself, how can you dance and type at the same time but you know somehow you found a way like there is all these things that are happening that I think in that moment you know that gives you a, a sense of being in your own space in your own body and also sort of tethered to some tethered to, to others that, that is such a that was such a critical thing I think the same thing quickly about um with to get more culturally specific about verses and about like in yes the- and it's Sorry. earlier. I'm not talking now that it's all that it's it's like co-sponsored by Surf and Rock, and you know, like I knew now that they're actually like trying to figure out how to make money. In the early days, when it was just you had a phone and Baby Face, Baby Face had a phone and Teddy Riley had a phone, and we just gonna we just gonna you know battle our best top ten songs, and people are gonna listen and enjoy. You know, like that part was particularly nice because it wasn't the news, it wasn't you know scripted entertainment but it was a way of bringing of being together with people who have shared interests and of course you know like you have the vip section michelle would come to visit sometimes and oprah would come to visit sometimes and so you got to be with them and watch these people have these conversations that you would never get to have with you know with them you know in your regular our regular selves uh and and get to see i would add Kristen. i would add to to that also yeah. not just verses but the club quarantine that dj yeah, nice would be nice that's first. right yeah. <laughs> so that was yes when oprah came through i was like i'm at a party with oprah yes <laughs> and you just it was just i mean it, it's just it was it's such an experience of being able to just play like plug in your auxiliary cord and you get to spend two and a half hours listening to these people tell stories and fight with each other about who has the best song and you get to sort of feel your own generational sort of like I'm old but in a beautiful way kind of self you know like there was things it's just there are moments where we accidentally figured it out um and those were the moments that felt most um most specific and most meaningful in terms of like visibility and in terms of like what is possible now those all have been co-opted you know and 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 now they're different and i can't be bothered but there was this moment where we had we could have had it all we just we could have had it all <laughs> well listen we were at a quarter after and but a fabulous uh really and i it's like the, you know what you're describing kristen is like what television was supposed to be um and uh but I wanted uh, to invite uh, Tyler Morgenstern to the screen. And um, I see that there's only four questions. I have not looked at them, but Tyler has been monitoring and the chat as well. So maybe we could take one question. Is there one great question? I'll let Ooh. you, does there need to be two? Tyler. Let's, can we do two? 
We can do whatever we want. We just okay. <laughs> let's go with two. Thank you okay. all first for a really wonderful conversation. It's been lovely listening to you. Um, I'll lump two questions together, one from Soheni Banerjee and one from Cody Kennedy that reconnects with this earlier discussion around uh, fandom and its slide into activism or the, the role between fan, the, the slide between fan and activist. So during the Black Lives Matters protests this summer, there was lots of talk about performative activism, so-called performative activism, which I take to mean this kind of plastic or symbolic activism that tends to take place on Twitter or Instagram. So we can recall these episodes like people posting black squares to Instagram and hashtagging them into conversations that were being used to coordinate marches and do other kinds of actual organizing work um, and how that became a kind of controversy. So how should out from the summer now, um, how should people be using or thinking about their social media platforms to show support for these kind of on the ground movements like Black Lives Matter in a way that doesn't replicate these kind of symbolic or plastic kind of gestures? Um, and Cody Kennedy also asked a similar question, asking um, what a kind of authentic form of socially mediated or distance activism looks like now. Um, I think, you know, the key, I think the key to differentiating between symbolic and the real or the, the or the meaningful is something about it needing to resonate. Um, something about it needing to have roots in something that is real and something that can 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 effectively connect with the viewer that doesn't just lie in the body alone. So I I think it's important um, and, and I, I want to sort of walk a very careful line here because, you know, we're talking about bo dead bodies and we're talking about dead black bodies and we should know them and we should know like the say their names i think there's a there's a logic to that there's a, a you know there's a there's something organic to it so i don't want to deny that but i but the so but it's about not just feeling the bodies feeling how you feel about like what happened to these bodies but what is a what is what is the the what is an accurate mode of progress what would be an accurate expectation for what can be done or what could mark progress and that is where oftentimes the 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 gap ha occurs because we start to make these jumps that don't necessarily connect or don't necessarily match with um with with what we have with what's available or what may be possible and i think that's tip and so whenever something happens that is what leads to the the plasticity like you know this is you know missy um uh, not being played by jenny slate like that or blackface being eliminated from all from all of the internet forever you know from all texts and from you know because now that because that is the signifier it's like that's not what anybody asked for that's not like the marker of progress that is not wanting to deal with, you know, explaining context behind what these things mean and why blackface exists and all of that. That is not what anybody asked for. No one asked for that. So that would, that's the, if that's the entertainment, if that's the marketplace's response, then it is not, it does not match, you know, what the expectation is of what people, what, what is desired. And so I think that that would be my, my answer. And I would only add to it to say that it's a question of duration. So like, um, 
I think what the part of performative activism as like a, a catchphrase is is that uh, you know it's been staged and it has the performance has come to an end um so we have we have we have recasted missy we have done these things we have now you know um made these changes as opposed to what kristen is describing which is having a substantive conversation about why we made the original choice and how we did not care <laughs> And so there's a level of reckoning around honesty, um, but then I would also say the duration of of thinking through these issues on a personal level, and also how we how we require in this again, Kristen with the brilliance, how we require our cultural industries, television, to continue to answer in a more substantive way behind the scenes. So like, how is this actually changing anything? If I just see somebody cast because now they're thinking we've got to have a black character, but we don't have any black people in the, the writer's room. We don't have executives. We don't have people in the guilds. It, it really is anything actually um, specifically changing. And in terms of um, the Black Lives Matter movement, I think one of the really key things is it will always be a combination, put your money, your mouth and your life like <laughs> in service. <laughs> and I don't know if everybody has done all of those. I think it became very cool to donate $20 to um, a bail relief fund um, um, and then do about, go about your business. Um, so I think that people really want to think about, um, about their actions and then how they put pressure on these various industries as we continue to see them monopolize what, what they may or may not choose to do um, themselves like the NFL or the NBA, or honestly, um, the um, National Women's Soccer League, which has been a mix of disappointing and affirming. Thank you very much. And we'll just conclude with one question, uh, one more question from Jeremy Moore, um, who asks, how can we think about the resurgence in a certain collective viewing experience that the pandemic has offered us? So Tiger King, for instance, or this week, it's Framing Britney, um, that may have been missing in past decades. Um, how are streaming services implicated in this and how have their roles evolved during this time? I, I think one of the things that this moment has underscored is um, that, you know, access to streaming services is still a relatively privileged situation. Um, and certainly, I mean, also <laughs> access to high speed internet is a privileged situation. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I, I felt the whole Tiger King moment was a really interesting um, yet another example of a kind of uh, very small subset of the US TV viewing population that was sort of picked up as a phenomenon. Um, uh, but that said, I think that in terms of extensions of television, that maybe one of the things that has really proliferated in this moment is uh, an extension on uh, generationally in terms of familiarity with uh, social media and uh, you know, uh, self-produced media platforms um, so that you have many more kind of users on outside of the typical demographic uh, producing their own, you know, broadcasting themselves, as YouTube would say, um, which is definitely a different phenomenon. But in terms of that question of sort of shared broadcast, you also have, as Reese said, multiple generations within the home, again, now, um, sometimes unwillingly, um, but for the first time in, uh, for many people in a long time. And in that sense, I think 
you know, the kind of uh, what uh, 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 game shows, uh, uh, reality TV, uh, sports TV, these are the kinds of old school traditional broadcast forms that do allow for multiple generations to view at the same time with some kind of pleasure. Okay, well, I'm gonna say, I mean, I know we could go on much longer and have lots to say. Um, we will be continuing to talk and working on a book together. Um, I wanna thank you, Reese and Samantha and Kristen and, and certainly Vicki for participating in this roundtable, for being part of the conference last year and for helping us think through these issues. So thank you, everybody. Thanks everyone for being part of the audience. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.